All right. We'll get started 15 minutes late, and we'll let all the tardy little sinners come in, do push-ups. Father, thank you for your word, and uh, that by it you bring life. Um, I ask tonight that you give clarity to your word, um, that you are able to thoroughly bring about an awareness in our minds and hearts of, of everything you want to, and uh, allow us to set a course here that will um, make an impact for decades to come. We love you. Amen. So, um, the last three or four weeks, barring um, the uh, Tuttle extravaganza, um, have been have been building up to this, and I spent a lot of time trying to lay a foundation for for us, so that we are able to stand, as Paul says in Ephesians six, that after all these things you may stand, and we have to have a foundation where we are rooted and established in Christ, and that that is absolute. First, foremost priority for us before we attempt to accomplish anything in Christ. Um, we've talked about this over and over, but typically we want to do a lot of things for him before we get established in him. And so we start to do things and we, it just ends up being a big, it's kind of a wreck and we end up coming back and hopefully getting established through the process. But first and foremost, we have to be established in Christ Delighting ourselves in him, allowing him to do the same in us, and root us uh, and ground us in love. Once that's been in place, then we're able to step into our, our function, our role. And so we spent about the last three or four weeks talking about a lot of the groundwork that I feel is necessary as far as foundational establishment for our lives in the Lord. The reason for that is I want to spend what I think will end up being the last month talking about the role of the church in our culture. So, first, first session on role of church and culture, I want to talk about the biblical grounds for the role of the church in the culture. And I want to speak to the context of the New Testament church and then point back to the Davidic kingdom, which was in all likelihood, the greatest manifestation of the kingdom of God in the earth, um, barring Solomon's, but David has described in much more detail. So I want to look at that model because it gives us the best understanding of what a national, a nationally uh, impacted government and land looks like when the church sits foremost. Okay. Then we'll get into some other stuff that's more practical probably in the next three weeks. But tonight's going to be kind of um, a little bit more general groundwork. Okay, so first, let's start with the New Testament church. The context and role of the New Testament church in the culture. And what I want to do is I want to address some of the questions that get asked regarding the church and its effect in the culture today. So first of all, when we look to the New Testament church and we say, well, they weren't necessarily, you know, setting up governments and they weren't talking about impacting uh, an educational system necessarily and, and they weren't talking about these spheres of influence that you seem to make such a big deal about. They were just preaching the gospel. That's all there was to it and that's all there should be to it. And that's regularly thrust forth as the primary argument why the church should just be the church and let the state be the state and just Stay separate, like they said, separation of church and state. Just you stick to the church business and you let the state and the government and the rest, they just stick to theirs. Church preach the gospel. First of all, biblically, that's a, that's a poor argument. And, and the reason why is the New Testament church was brand new, right? It was brand new. It, this church idea was brand new. So the kingdom which was the church, was born into a culture that was, first of all, extremely profane. 
When you, when you read in the book of Acts, in the, the letters of Paul to these different cultures, they were writing to a church that was seated amidst some of the most profane cultures that have ever existed. Husband of one wife. They're having to remind these guys that this is what's appropriate. And then they're having to tell them, if you want to be qualified for church leadership, you can only have one lady at home. If that's a qualification for church leadership, that's not saying too much about the status of a nation. Right? So that's, there, there's one thing. No eating. So do you remember in the book of Acts where they're coming up with rules for the Gentile believers? It was so profane in this culture that they weren't, they weren't like, okay, guys, you know, here's the holiness standard up here. They were just trying to create two general rules so that they weren't living in utter corruption. And the two they came up with was don't eat food sacrificed to other gods, idols, and no sexual immorality. They're just like, let's just start there and see if it gets better. It was so profane that when these people came into the church, they're like, we're going to give them two things not to do. If we get there, maybe we can move forward a little bit, but we're not starting with much. And so we, we fail to understand the context when we, when we look at what was happening in the New Testament church. There were, there were many, 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 many gods in this culture. Everybody had a god. A lot of them had gods in their homes. All who demanded all of whom demanded sacrifice, and often it was either child sacrifice or sexual worship. So this is a culture. So what commonplace life was, was that everybody had a god, some went to a temple, some just had them in their house. Different types of sacrifice were always offered and required of by these gods, usually monetary. Some, like they talk about Molech, required child sacrifice. Others, and mostly, were pagan sexual um, gods and goddesses that required these types of activity to, be, to become a member of the priesthood. It's, it's fantastic. It's really kind of amazing. Um, and this was the culture, the context, that the New Testament church was born into. So we look at this now, and we seem to think that when Paul said, I preach Christ and Christ crucified, and that's it, that what he meant was that he's only going to talk about God's love and forgiveness of sin. So when we look at Paul's writing, he says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified. Now, today, we often look at that and say, he's not getting involved in political affairs. He's not addressing things about family. He's talking about Jesus and Jesus crucified, and that's it. First of all, we have to, we have to establish something very, very clear very early on. Christ and him crucified was not just about forgiveness of sin. Christ and him crucified was reflective of the end of the reign of sin in the earth. And the initiation and establishment of God's kingdom on the earth. There's a huge difference with how we perceive this statement. If we perceive Christ and Christ crucified as simply the end of sin in regard to you can be forgiven now, we miss out on 98% of what the gospel really is. Christ and Christ crucified is about the end of the reign of sin in the earth and the establishment of the kingdom of God in the earth permanently. So when Paul says, I preach Christ and Christ crucified, he's saying, I preach the gospel. And we go, oh good, the gospel of salvation. And Paul says, I preach the gospel of the kingdom. Salvation is an element of that gospel. But it certainly is not the whole. If we take the argument that we're just supposed to talk about forgiveness of sins and the love of God, and we take it to the utmost, essentially what we're saying is that if Paul had seen a first century revival in Ephesus that he would have told church members, don't talk about government, don't talk about how to educate, don't talk about how to do family, we're only going to talk about forgiveness here. It's silliness. But that's the argument taken to fullness. 
So if we look back at history in the scriptures, God's kingdom, which would now be called the church in the New Testament, was separate from the state in that it told the state how to govern and educate and judge. So biblically and historically, the church and the state were separate in such a way that the state was not able to control the church. But the church was positioned such that it could direct, guide, and speak to the state about the heart of God in every matter. So the church was separate, and then in that, the state didn't control the church. The state and the church were separate in that the church was the witness before God to the state regarding the management of its governance. Does that make sense? So what's that mean? That means that the church and the state were separate so that the, ch- the state could not tell the church how to do what it was supposed to do. The state was not able to control and put certain people where they wanted it and tell the, the church what to preach. In fact, the church was positioned in such a manner where if, if you're the state and I'm the church, my job is to stand before God and tell you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong as it pertains to your management of your sphere of influence, be that government, be that education, be that family. Be... That was the church's role, was to stand as the intermediary between God and the state organizations, whatever they would be. The church was meant to be the birthplace of culture, shapers, not just folks that are a part of it and are hanging out in it. We'll get there when we get to David's kingdom. Another another point on this matter, Paul actually gets into the instruction uh, of the church in how to structure itself and establish leaders, right? We remember that from the pastoral epistles. Those are the books after the red letter books. Um, Those are pastoral epistles. And he talks about how you should structure church leadership. What are the qualifications? Why are these people in place? What should a church function like? Why would he do this if it didn't matter? Why would he do this other than he's teaching the church that you're going to be the model for structure. You're going to be the example of what God's kingdom is supposed to look like in an organization. So he's giving them an example of the kingdom, of leadership, of infrastructure, of the design that could be followed throughout all of society and would one day be the makeup of God's kingdom fully manifest on the earth. So Paul's laying a groundwork for the church to understand this is what you're supposed to look like. Now when you sit and you speak into the other areas of governance throughout the land, you've got to be able to show them what it's supposed to look like. You have to know first And then you've got to be able to instruct them, this is how it's supposed to go. One of the other regular comments um, that I'll hear, and uh, it's a really easy one to fall into. If people aren't getting saved, I don't want them just to be moral. Right? I mean, it makes sense. Uh, Honestly, it makes total sense to me. If people aren't getting saved, I don't want to just help shape a moral culture in a good people. If they're not getting saved, what's the point? Well, really, it's, again, if you take this argument all the way to its end, we're basically saying that God would prefer the Holocaust the continuation of abortion, the continued slaughter of villages in Africa, um, that he would prefer that to a society in which people could experience liberty, opportunity, security, and moral standards. That's kind of what we're saying. We're saying that we, would, we think God would prefer having a society in which it's utter chaos and the church is under complete um, persecution and destruction to a society in which the church is able to function freely People are able to practice the fullness of their religion. And that we're saying that if people aren't getting saved, I don't want to have this kind of society. I'd rather have this kind of society. That's kind of silly. 
yes, we primarily want people to be saved. Eternally and ultimately, that is our goal. However, it's not an all-or-nothing standard. It's our primary objective, but it's not an all-or-nothing standard. So if we can form a culture in which God's kingdom flourishes, don't we think we should probably take that opportunity? So this, this thought that says if people aren't getting saved, I don't want to just have a moral society. A moral society, a society that has liberty and opportunity, is one in which the kingdom can flourish. The church can flourish in a society where persecution is heavy. But the kingdom, in the fullness of its expansion, does not really flourish in a society where they're under constant persecution. So this is where, what we're trying to do is we're trying to break out of the church mindset that says, hey, as long as we've got a good church service, We've got services three or four nights a week, and people are getting prayed for and prophesied over. Things are really great. And meanwhile, we're watching our culture disintegrate around us. We feel like we're really successful in our nice little buildings. And that's not a biblical model. So this was one that I I came across this week. And I mentioned it earlier. The church's role, this is a, a regular, consistent statement. The church's role is to preach the gospel and nothing else. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, usually when this is said, someone is talking about your job is to preach the gospel of forgiveness of sin unto salvation, and that's it. That's not biblical. First of all, it is the gospel of the kingdom and not just a gospel of salvation. Do we understand the difference? Gospel of salvation is where in repentance, by the kindness of God, We are led into salvation, new life, new birth. That is the first step into living a life that is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom speaks to family. It speaks to business. It speaks to economics. It speaks to governance. It speaks to the judicial system. The gospel of the kingdom pertains to every sphere of life. The gospel of the kingdom is best understood as what will the world look like when Jesus comes back in fullness and establishes his way on the earth entirely. That's the kingdom. That's what was started with the resurrection in Pentecost, more more accurately. What began at Pentecost was the inception of the kingdom amongst the church which was meant to flow out of the church and into every part of life, just as it will be when Jesus returns and establishes his way everywhere. That's what the kingdom is. That's the difference. Salvation means you can be saved and you're still a train wreck. It means you can be forgiven and yet your, your marriage is falling apart, your family is chaos, you can't keep a job, you have no idea what to do with your finances. You're a law-breaking maniac. You're saved, but you're not expressing anything of the kingdom whatsoever in your life. This is a gospel of the kingdom. If we minimize it to simply a gospel of salvation, we lose 98% of the message. So when we hear the Church's goal is to preach the gospel and nothing else. You just, and I'll, I'll give you an example. Oh, right now. Um, I didn't think it was as soon as my notes. All right. So first, it's the gospel of the kingdom, not just the gospel of salvation. Second, this is amazing. I found this out this week. Do you guys remember the 1930s in Germany? Okay. Yeah, I was there too. Yep. Okay. So, historically, um, Davey and I were the only two that were there, but for the rest of you guys that weren't, when in Germany there was a love relationship between the church and state, they, they were in love. And so much so that the Kaiser, who was the head of Germany at the time, you remember, he's got the same beard, um, 
So the Kaiser was the head of the German state, and, and the church and the government were so in bed in Germany in the late 20s and early 30s that the Kaiser was viewed as the head of the church, not just the head of the government. And he was, part of his job was baptizing people, and he was shown, you know, uh, dedicating babies and baptizing people and leading all these services, and they were so wed together that they become inseparable. And the church had lost her discernment and her ability to be separate from the state and look into the state and say, some things are happening here that aren't quite right. So this is the context into which Hitler becomes the leader of Germany by popular election, which is a whole nother conversation, but it's rather amazing that the most horrific leader, arguably, uh, one of the most horrific leaders that the world has known was um, elected through popular election by the most educated nation on earth at the time. That's just for another day. But when Hitler comes to power in Germany, this is what he does. He installs a new leader in the church. He sees what's happening in the, the marriage between the church and the state in Germany. He sees it and he says, I can leverage this. The church is going to oppose what I want to accomplish in Germany. And I know they, they should. We're going to kill the Jews. They better not be able to speak out against what we're doing. So the first thing Hitler does is he establishes a new leader of the church. This guy's name was Mueller. And when Mueller takes authority over the church in Germany, he passes an, an edict. It's called Immediately. To the entire church in Germany. This edict said this. The church has one responsibility in message. It is to preach the love of God unto the forgiveness of sin. That is the sole message of the church. That is the gospel. And that's the only thing the church is going to speak about. Of course he had been instructed to do this by Hitler. Because what they understood was that if we can get the church to stop speaking about the kingdom... We'll completely handcuff them and we'll create impotence in the church so that they will be silent on all the things they should be speaking out against. So Hitler and Mueller understood that if we can get the church to stop speaking about anything but the love of God and the forgiveness of sin, that we've won the battle already. Well, now as Christians in America, we're voluntarily taking that on ourselves. But they knew that if they could get the church to buy into this, they'd they created a culture of silence against which the pastors would not speak. And what happens when a culture of silence begins, a German theologian spoke about what happened in Germany in the 30s, and he called it the, the spiral of silence. And what began in Germany was they came on them quick and they said, you be quiet about these things. You can only speak about the God. And so they went quiet. And once silence has become the culture, it becomes more and more and more and more and more difficult for anyone to speak out. It's already begun here in our country. What happens in the church from Christians the moment one person stands up and speaks out against some of the issues that are major in our day, abortion, same-sex marriage, whatever it might be? What happens when someone becomes a vocal opponent to these things? The church begins to rebuke them and chastise them for being judgmental and unloving. That's what they created in Germany. We've just assumed it ourselves voluntarily. We didn't need any government intervention. It's incredible. Mueller and Hitler both knew that this would cripple the church from being a societal force. They knew that if the church spoke out from the beginning that they could put a halt to all the movement that the Nazis wanted to accomplish. So, see, what's amazing about it is people are trying to make parallels about our government and the Nazi government. We don't need to do that. And we're not here calling anyone a Nazi because you know what's amazing? As a church in America, we've done all this stuff voluntarily without the government doing it to us. We have assumed the culture of silence in the church we have assumed the mantle of let's just be loving and talk about forgiveness and let's never speak out about any issues because it's just so judgmental and offensive. In Germany, they needed the government to force the church to do this. We've just done it voluntarily. 
the church in Germany was large and it was powerful. It was very wealthy. It was very intellectual. And Hitler knew that if the church were to oppose him from the outset, that would have halted his progress in what he wanted to accomplish in Germany. And so he made it his primary target when he took over in the early 30s to silence the church at all costs. And they did it through this edict by which the church was only permitted to speak the gospel. And it was a false gospel. It was the 2% gospel. And they bought into it. And in Germany, as we have done voluntarily in America today, we've embraced the deception, and in so doing, we've handcuffed ourselves and begun a spiral of silence. Try it. Seriously, just try it. Try try speaking out against one of these issues. You will get more retaliation from the church than you will from without. Um, Another one of the statements is, the church, um, the church is, the church is just surviving essentially until Jesus comes back. I think all of us have believed this theology at one point or another, where we just didn't know about this kingdom. I mean, I spent thirty years of ballpark, not quite, uh, of my life thinking that the gospel was just forgiveness and God's love. And then you come to find out that the gospel is a kingdom and it speaks to everything and suddenly eyes are open. And so this, this argument is one that I think most of us have, have owned or believed at one point or another. Hopefully not anymore, but that the church is just supposed to survive until Jesus comes back. It's one of the reasons that the rapture theology was created was because we're just, we're just looking for an out. We're in survival mode. We're not looking to build anything, establish anything, create anything, shape anything. We're just going to be here in the church hoping that people leave us alone until Jesus gets back. In Matthew 28, however, Jesus said, All all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus taught about more than just forgiveness. Teach them everything I've commanded you to do. Some translations, he actually says, go, go disciple nations. Jesus talked about more than forgiveness. He talked about leadership. He talked about government. He talked about business and money. I know it's crazy. Money. Do you know that Jesus actually talked more about your job and your money than he did about the church? Biblical. Count it. Count them. He talks more about your job than anything else. That's mind-blowing. In other words, he expects us in our jobs to produce fruit for the kingdom. That's outside the church. So right from Jesus' basic teaching, he's teaching them kingdom, not just forgiveness of sin. Jesus taught about family and children. He taught about justice and social justice. This was a really cool passage that I came across a few weeks ago, I think, as talking to Dan and Josh about it. In Revelation 12 and 13, there's a picture of when Satan is cast down to the earth. Remember, he's thrown out of the heavenlies and he's cast down to the earth. And there's a picture that's given here. And in it, there's kind of this amazing little nugget that I pulled out of it that really, it, it really opposes this whole idea that we're just here to survive until Jesus comes back. You know, one of the things is it's all going to burn up anyway. Why are we worried about trying to establish a kingdom now? Revelation 13.5. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It is given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given every authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will, will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. 
Whoever has ears, let him hear. If anyone goes into, is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they'll be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. It sounds like survival mode, does it not? And it absolutely is. First, though, in Revelation 12, Scripture says, and, and it's a build-up. This isn't one of the skip-around places. In Revelation 12, it says, right before this chapter, Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God. When Jesus was crucified and Satan was cast down, what's declared in the heavens is now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God. The next chapter, though, he's talking about this beast guy. He's given all authority. What's the deal here? In Revelation 13, verse 5, let's, let's read this again. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and exercise its authority for 42 months. Wait, for 42 months. Context of Revelation 12 is that the kingdom of our God has come. Revelation 13 says there will be a 42-month period in history, in the future, three and a half years. This is a little quick math for you. Um, where the beast will be given authority for 42 months, and he will persecute, and he will kill, and it will be horrible, and we need to hide. He says it right here, just hide out. Matthew 24, 25, same thing, just hide out. But up until then, what? If he's given authority for 42 months, we know that when Jesus comes back, he has no more authority. He's gone. The day Jesus comes back, his kingdom is set on the earth. But if he's given authority for 42 months, that means at the start point, somebody else was in authority. Who? Revelation 12. Now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God. That's who's in authority until that 42 months. The church has been given that authority in Matthew 28 and in Pentecost. We live as though Satan is in authority and that we're just surviving and we're just trying to get something pretty built. I don't think we often consider ourselves to be the authority for establishment of government, of every other system on the earth. Have any of us ever thought that way? I'm establishing this on the earth in permanence because it's God's kingdom and I've been given all authority. I think we've been kind of duped by a couple things. Once, there's a lot of, you know, deception. Uh, obviously, we have an enemy who would rather we didn't. Take, a, take this authority upon us. But we also cooperate with this tricky little thing called false humility. It's a bugger. Um, we talk like we don't have power, and we call it humility. I'm really nothing. And Jesus says, I'm sorry, what? That's not what I died for. We don't have authority. I can, I can do nothing of myself. Well, good thing you're not alone. And we can't do much other than hide out till Jesus comes back to rescue us. You know, if you remember, um, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If we didn't have authority, we couldn't resist and he would never flee. If he had authority, our resistance would be futile. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. If you didn't have authority, your resistance would be useless and he would never flee. When Jesus tells the parable of the talent, he's talking about the kingdom. So we're talking a little bit about Jesus' teaching and how Jesus spoke regularly about the kingdom. He uses multiple parables, mustard seed, talent, angels, fish net, pearl in the field. These are about the kingdom, not the church. Or not only the church. The kingdom, the whole thing. When Jesus tells the parable of the talent, he expects fruit from his investment. That means he gives us the grace to create fruit. 
But many of us are in danger of being called the wicked, lazy servant because all we did was hid what we had. This is in regard to who we are outside of these four walls. When Jesus comes back, he is going to require fruit from us that we got when outside of the church walls. Because how much of the kingdom happens outside these walls? We're here for two hours a week, four hours a week, maybe six because we're Pentecostal. There's 128 hours in the week. Five percent of the time we're in church. Ninety-five percent of our fruit should come from outside the walls. Wow. Crunch it. Crunch it quick. It's just under five percent. It's about four point eight. Six hours. Should come from outside the walls. Dan's got the calculator out back there. It's good. All right, we're good. We put a lot of emphasis on fruit that we get out of this, right? Out of ministry, out of what I do in the church. The reason Jesus spent so much time talking about work and the rest of life was because that's where we spend most of life. And that's where most of our fruit will be required. Hiding talents, the position, the power, the authority that was given us outside the walls is not our future. That is not who we are, and that is not who we will be. God's kingdom. First Chronicles 18.14. Flip it, please, if you have a Bible. If you don't, I'm going to read it anyway, but whatever. Um, <clears throat> so David reigned over all Israel. It actually says, so David reigned. I'm not just saying so. So David reigned over all Israel. And he administered justice and equity to all his people. Not just the ones that came to church or temple. He administered justice and equity to all his people. Check this out. Starting in verse 15, if you have your Bible, this is cool. And Joab, the son of, yep, was over the army. And Jehoshaphat, the son of, his brother evidently, uh, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of... Uh, Ahitub and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Shavsha was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Joadiah, was uh, he was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were the chief officials in the service of the king. Okay, why did I just read that? Not just to mispronunciate um, some good Jewish names, but because he goes through systematically and shows who the leaders were in God's kingdom, David's kingdom, in each of these arenas. So this is where it's really cool. Did you guys have those same translations? So you have, um, this guy was over the army, this guy was recorder, the other guy was a secretary, the other guy was over the Cherethites and Pelethites, and David's sons were the chief officials. Yeah? Is that the same translation you got? Anyone got a different translation? New King Jimmy or Greek? No, okay. Here's where it's really cool. This guy, Z, he was over the army. So he's, he's the five-star general, right? So he is the Colin Powell of a few years ago. Jehoshaphat was recorder. What's a recorder? The guy played exactly. <laughs> Anybody else know what the recorder is? Takes the notes, takes the minutes. That's what I thought too. Turns out I was wrong. Hey, that's the first time Char's ever been wrong. <laughs> Bonus points for me. Uh, I'm going home her favorite. Um, the recorder was the chief justice. It was the head of the legal system. It would be the chief lawyer. That's what a recorder was. Mind-blowing. Zadok, 
and uh, Ahitub, we're going with that, they were the priests. Zadok was the priest that would have been the prophetic voice priest. Remember Nathan? He's the prophetic voice priest. We'll get to him in a second. But Zadok is the priest, and the other guy is a priest of Levi, who serves the priest of Aaron, who was Zadok. So they were the head of the temple functions as it pertained to the state. This is where it gets cool again, though. Shavsha was a secretary. What's a secretary? He's the other guy who takes notes. There's lots of note takers in David Kingdom. He's a singer. You sing songs, you write it down, and then you write down the music. The secretary was actually a governor. So this is the head of his government. So, so David's king, and he's got governors who are heads of state. This is your state department right here. So a secretary is actually a governor. Benaiah was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. The Cherethites were foreign criminals that were most likely taken captive, which would mean that he is actually probably the head of the penal system. So his, one of his jobs was to carry out uh, the rule of the chief justice and oversee the penal system of all the people that they'd conquered in battle, make sure that they stayed in line. His other responsibility with the Pelethites was the foreigners. This referred to all the foreigners. In other words, he was the head of foreign affairs or international relations. And David's sons were the chief officials, which would be not just the guys who walked around in suits, but they were the business and economic leaders of the, of the nation. So right here, where we see in David's kingdom a clear picture of what God's kingdom can look like in the earth, he describes in detail the different leadership positions that were born out of the church and established in the kingdom to lead the entire nation according to God's way. This is what it's supposed to look like. The church should be the birthplace of the leaders and the shapers of culture. Business, government, law, judicial system. Say that three times quick and sound sober. You can't. What it's supposed to look like is we here as a church are birthing the ones who will step into the kingdom, which is 95.2% of our time out there, and begin to lead in these different fields. If it's academics, if it's government, if it's economics, whatever it may be, we here are meant to feed that leadership void that is very evident in our nation today. Nathan was a really great example of what the church is supposed to function in today as it relates to government. What did Nathan do? You guys remember? Nathan was a prophet, right? First thing that is notable about Nathan, he was the one who told David about the covenant God was going to make with him. So he's speaking to the king on behalf of God. He's an intermediary. Another case where we see Nathan present is when David had committed adultery with another guy's wife. Nathan steps in, whereas now the church leader would step in and just say, just blessings and peace to you, O heavenly leader. I don't want to judge you or offend you for any of your policies or principles or actions, so I'm just here to bless you and pray for you and speak loving words to you. Nathan comes in, he's like, you sinned. In fact, he tells him a riddle, he tricks him. You sinned. And then he tells him that, well, because you've repented, you're not going to die, but your child is. This is the role of the church to the state. Made manifest in Nathan's life. It's an amazing picture. Nathan was separate from David and the state in that he was God's voice to speak to David regarding the way David lived and governed. That's how the church is supposed to roll today. When God's kingdom is manifest, it's evident that he places a leader that walks with him into each sphere of influence or government. It's also clear that the prophet, his voice, 
Now the church, that's us, we have the voice of God, that we speak to the issues of each of the spheres of influence, that each sphere would know the heart and mind of God in, in every manner. On every manner. Let me say that again. The church that has the voice of God, that's us, we are to speak to each sphere of influence. That each sphere would know the heart and mind of God on every matter. What happens when the church goes silent is people forget that there's a better way. When the wrong way of doing things is considered right long enough, you forget that it was wrong in the first place. And when the church has gone silent about a better way in the right way, people start to think that this is the best way available. And when you finally step in and you say there's a better way, they freak out because no one wants to be awoken from a comfortable slumber. But we have to. Why do we have to? It's because it's not for the sake of men primarily that the prophet or the church is to speak. It is primarily to be found faithful before God. That is why the church has an obligation to speak primarily. Secondarily, it's for the sake of men that they might know in turn. But primarily, it's that God would have his way known throughout the earth and that we might be found faithful to him for him. Obviously, I think we all know the famous Bonhoeffer quote, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. In other words, what Bonhoeffer is saying is, we will be held accountable for every word that we did not speak. I'm going to finish with this. Micah 6, 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? It doesn't say to love justice and do kindness. It says to do justice and love kindness. Justice is what is right, fair, and equitable. To do justice is to enact it, to enforce it, and to implement it. We do that first personally, here, within us. Our first obligation is to do justice here, where we do right, we implement right, we enact right within ourselves every single day. And once that's been established, and it doesn't take real long, we begin to enact it, to implement it, to enforce it, in whatever our sphere of influence is. That's what it means to do justice. In other words, it is our responsibility to implement what is right in every way we can. Next week, we'll get into some practicals, but let me just finish by saying, I, I don't expect you to try to contact the president you know, and read him the riot act about his policies and the things that he's been doing. That's not your sphere of influence yet. What I do mean is that you have a sphere of influence. Be it in the workplace, school, friends, family, where to do justice is to do everything in your ability to right the wrongs that you see happening that you can affect. And by can affect, I mean speak to, address, change a policy, create a system, make a rule. Talk to someone about things that are wrong. I'm going to pray, and then next week we'll get into some more stuff. Father, thank you for a kingdom that you have entrusted to us. You said it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It's not just your good pleasure to give us salvation, though you rejoice when that happens. You celebrate when that happens. It is your good pleasure to give us a kingdom. 
So we say yes, God, we want your kingdom. We want to walk in the fullness of your authority. We want to walk in the fullness of your power. And we want to walk in the fullness of your kingdom on the earth. We want you to come back. We want your kingdom established in fullness. But we will not sit idly by and do nothing to establish your kingdom and make your name known in the earth in the meantime. So, Father, I ask for a release of grace here, for a release of your spirit amongst your people to take action, to take authority, and to begin to walk in the fullness of their calling that you might have your reward, that you might have your inheritance. Father, we thank you for the privilege of being chosen to walk in your kingdom that you've chosen us to reveal these things too. Father, when you were here the first time, thousands listened and a dozen got to see and hear and understand that this was about a kingdom that they were being entrusted with. You trust us with your kingdom. Lord, cause us to not take that for granted. Cause us not to be the wicked, lazy servant, but give us courage to stand. Give us courage to push back, to right wrongs, to tell sinners that there's a better way. We love you, Father. We are so eager to see your kingdom on the earth. We love you. Amen.